ask you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to read this morning from verses 18 to 22 as we set the context for what will be our passage for not only this Sunday, but next Sunday as well. And once you have that, I'd ask you to stand with me out of respect for God's Word as we read this passage together. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient, when God patiently waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is, eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Amen. This is God's word for us this morning. Please be seated. I do want to say happy Reformation Sunday to you. It's a special day as we think about God's power seen and the recovery of the gospel uh, in the 16th century. It's a great thing for us to remember and to celebrate and to be grateful. I really appreciated Bryce's prayer earlier when he just reminded us what a privilege it is to have God's Word in our language, that we can read it, that we can know it, when so many still to this day do not have that. Well, uh, this morning we're going to be looking at a difficult passage. As we read through it, perhaps you thought, well, I'm not sure exactly what that means. If you thought that, well, then you're in good company because there are many people who have read this passage and they have had the exact same thought. Now, for me, one of the most ironic statements in the Bible is one that the Apostle Peter made in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. He said this, he said, Also, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. He speaks about these things in all his letters. There are some things hard to understand in them. The untaught and unstable will twist them to their own destruction, as they also do with the rest of the Scripture. So notice in that passage that uh, Peter points to Paul and says that you know, some of the things that Paul says are hard to understand, and that's true, but the irony is found in the fact that Peter is no theological lightweight himself. And particularly in this passage that we're going to be looking at this Sunday and, Lord willing, next Sunday, we have a passage that has confused many commentators and pastors through the century. So Martin Luther said this about this passage. He said, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. Now that's not a particularly encouraging word from Martin Luther as we begin our time together this morning. After all, if Luther doesn't know what it means, what hope do us mere mortals have as we look at this passage together? Let me tell you what the hope is. The hope is that our God is so kind that even when there are difficult portions of a particular text, he makes the most important things particularly clear. And that's what we're going to see in this passage this morning. We're going to see that even though there are aspects of this passage that are quite murky, the main point... Uh, the thing that Peter's trying to get across to us is crystal clear, and his point is this, the Lord Jesus was victorious through suffering. And because he was victorious through suffering, we also will be victorious even as we endure suffering in our own lives. So we're looking again at 1 
Peter 3, we're in a portion of the book where Peter is talking about this issue of suffering. And it is notable, I think, in 1 Peter how much time he spends speaking about suffering. Really, much of the rest of this book, we're going to be dealing with this issue of suffering in the Christian life, looking at it at all kinds of different angles. And that's a remarkable thing when you'll have men on television and women on television telling you it's not God's will for you to suffer. Well, there's a lot of instruction given to us about suffering because the reality is if you follow Jesus in a fallen world, you will suffer in one way or another, but God is so kind that he teaches us about it. Now, last week we looked at, or the last time, we looked at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 17, and in those verses, Peter was kind of encouraging those believers, these early believers that he's writing to, uh, he's encouraging with the fact that even though they would suffer, they would suffer slander, they'd suffer mocking, persecution, uh, eventually many believers, they suffered death, even though they would suffer, God would never allow them to ultimately be harmed. So yeah, they'll experience harm, but they'll never experience ultimate harm. Right? Physically we will suffer, emotionally we will suffer, but our souls are safe with God. And, and it's more than just that our souls are safe with God. He also teaches us that we will be rewarded for our faithfulness to suffer for Christ's sake. Even if we suffer for righteousness, we will be blessed. Well, now, in verses 18 to 22, he's continuing to encourage us as we face suffering. And the way he's going to encourage us this morning is by pointing us to the example of the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus who also suffered. So we serve a Lord who has gone before us. We do not have to blaze our own path in the Christian life. We simply need to follow Jesus, and Jesus suffered. He was falsely accused. He faced mocking. He was scourged. He was slapped in the face, ultimately he was stripped naked, and he was exposed for multitudes to see, and then, of course, he died. He suffered, but Jesus was not overcome by his suffering. Jesus actually triumphed through his suffering. His greatest victory came through his suffering as he gave his life for us. And so those of us who are Christians, and by that I mean those of us who have turned from our sins and we are trusting in Christ and Christ alone for salvation, because we are in Christ, because we're united with Him by His Holy Spirit, we will also be victorious through suffering. We will pass through it, but we will be victorious because He will see us through all of our trials. Now that's terribly, terribly hopeful, isn't it? Because I can just look at faces this morning. I know what's going on in your life. And there's a lot of suffering. We'll talk about that as we go through. So you look here at these verses, uh, 18 to 22, did my best to fit in in one sermon. Bryce wisely said, don't do that. So we're going to do it in two sermons. We're going to look at verses 18 to 20 this morning, and then, Lord willing, next week we'll look at verses 21 to 22. If you're taking notes, you'll see two points this morning from verses 18 to 20. First point is on the cross, Jesus suffered for sinners. On the cross, Jesus suffered for for sinners. We'll see that in the first part of verse 18. And then following the cross, Jesus proclaimed his victory over hell. Following the cross, Jesus proclaimed his victory over hell. We'll see that in the second part of verse 18 through verse 20. Look with me, if you will, at that first point. On the cross, Jesus suffered for sinners. Now, we are celebrating Reformation Day, and today is the 504th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church. And as he did so, he touched off the Reformation, and 
through the course of the Reformation, the gospel of Jesus Christ was really recovered because it had been kind of encrusted by centuries of Roman Catholic tradition, and the gospel, the true gospel, had been obscured by all of this man-made tradition. But then, by God's grace, he brought us back to the very heart of the gospel. And what is the very heart of the gospel? What's the very heart of the Christian faith? It's this. It's the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement. Uh, the idea that Christ did not die for himself, but that he died for others, that he died for his people. He died in the place of those who needed salvation so that we, you and me, we might be reconciled to God. And that is precisely, that doctrine of the substitutionary atonement is precisely what Peter is pointing to in verse 18, the first part. He says, for Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring you to God. So remember the context, verses, 17, excuse me, verses 13 to 17. Peter's encouraging these believers that, hey, you are going to suffer, but you're never going to experience ultimate harm because even if you suffer, you're going to be blessed. And now in verse 18, he points us to Christ and notice that he says, Christ also suffered. We're to be encouraged by this. We're to be encouraged by the fact that we are not alone in our suffering. It's one of the difficult things about suffering, right, is that you feel so alone. Well, here you have a verse that teaches you that the Lord Jesus, who loves you infinitely, also suffered. You'll never be alone in your suffering. His suffering was, was uh, done for the sake of blessing others. And through his suffering, he was victorious, and we have entered into his victory. What was the suffering, though? What was the suffering that he endured? Well, of course, it's the cross. It's the cross of Christ. That's the suffering that Peter is pointing us to here. And actually, in this verse, the first part of verse 18, you have really one of the clearest summaries of the gospel in the entire New Testament. He really unpacks for us the very heart of the gospel. So what does he teach us about what Jesus was doing on the cross? Well, first, Peter teaches us that Christ's work on the cross was a one-time event. He says there the phrase, once for all. That translates a Greek word, hapox. And the idea of hapox is that it is a one-time event. And because it's a one-time event, it never needs to be repeated. It's valid for all times. And so, in contrast to Roman Catholic doctrine, we do not need a perpetual sacrifice of the Mass because the great and final sacrifice has already occurred. And that's what Hebrews teaches us in Hebrews 9, verses 24 to 26. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, only a model of the true one, but into heaven itself, so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. He did not do this to offer himself many times, as the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. Otherwise, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared one time, that's that word hapox, one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. When you talk about the cross of Jesus Christ, you're talking about an event in history, the central event in all of history, and it is a one-time event. What did Christ do? Well, 2 Peter teaches us that Jesus' suffering on the cross was substitutional. Notice that Peter says, the righteous for the unrighteous. Literally, it, it can be translated this way, the righteous one, singular, for the unrighteous people, plural. One, giving his life for many. What was he doing? He was serving as a substitute. He was taking their sins upon himself, paying the penalty for their sins. Why? 
brother and sister, so that you and I would not have to bear the penalty of our sins for all eternity. And that's what's at stake at the cross. And that's what's so glorious about the cross. Because he offered himself as a sacrifice for the unrighteous so that we might be rescued. Friend, I don't know if you know it this morning, but you need to be saved. You need to be saved from the wrath of God against your sins. And that's what Jesus laid his life down on the cross to do, to provide a way of salvation for sinners. Jesus did not die on the cross for his sins. Jesus had no sins. Instead, Jesus died in behalf of the sins of his people. That's what we read about earlier from Isaiah 53. Listen to how it talks about this wonderful prophecy 700 years ahead. This is what it says. Jesus, the sinless one, was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We've all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. You know, third, Peter teaches us here that Christ's work of suffering on the cross was purposeful. If you notice that word, that there, Peter says, that he might bring you to God. So Christ's death was not meaningless. It was not an accident of history. He was not some fiery revolutionary that got caught up in the political, you know, gears of the Roman Empire and was crushed as a result. No, he came to die. That's why he says over and over in the gospel that he's come to die. And then he told his disciples how he would die. And then he told his disciples that he would rise again three days later. And friends, the reason we're here is because he did so. But why did he do so? What was the purpose? Well, what's the meaning? The purpose was to bring us to God. Recently, I I read a book with my children called The Garden, the Curtain, and the Cross. And it's a really helpful kind of short story that points us first to the garden. And what happened in the garden? Adam and Eve, they, they sinned against God. And as a result, they were banished from the garden. They weren't able to come into the presence of God anymore in the way that they had. And then the book points us to the curtain of the temple. And what is the curtain of the temple? It's this massive curtain, some 60 foot high curtain, some four inches thick of material. And what was the purpose of this massive curtain? It was to be a a living picture of the fact that the sinful people of Israel could not enter into the presence of the holy God. They had to be separate or they would be destroyed, but then Christ does. And what does Christ do on the cross? Well, think about what happened when he died. What happened when he died? The curtain is torn from top to bottom. Something only God can do from 60 feet up all the way to the bottom. Why? Because Jesus had opened the way to God the Father. That's what he was doing. He was making a way for us to be called back from our banishment, from our exile, so we could once again enter into the very presence of God because we are clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. And now we can come boldly. I love that. I love that about gathering together on Sunday morning. It doesn't matter Uh, If I've had a miserable week or not, I'm not coming to worship God based on my righteousness. I'm coming to worship God based on Christ's righteousness. And he's made a way for me to do that. And so I'm invited into this body where I can once again receive fresh grace in the gospel to remember that it is Christ. It is always Christ. It's always his righteousness. And it is his righteousness that by his spirit, he will work and produce in all of us. And we'll see the fullness of it when we see him face to face. Friends, we're talking about the gospel. We're talking about the good news. We're talking about this glorious message that we were created by a good and loving God who wanted to have a relationship with us, who wanted us to walk with him in his favor and know his goodness and serve him. That's why we were made. 
But our first parents, they sinned against God. They turned against Him. They rebelled against His law, even though it was good. They decided it would be better for them to live for themselves than to live for Him. And so they sinned against Him. And as a result, there was this separation. They had to leave the garden. We sinned in them. And because we, sinned, we come from them, we also have inherited their same sinful nature. So that it feels very natural for us to live for ourselves and not for God. Right? Just to think about that for a second. Because everything you're hearing in the culture right now is telling you that the best thing you can possibly do is do everything your heart tells you to do. But Christianity says the problem is your heart. The problem is the heart. Your heart's telling you to do things that are dishonoring to God and things that will ultimately destroy your never-dying soul. That's what we face as sinners, friends. And we are all sinners. None of us escaped that plague. The Bible says God is holy. We're not holy. There's no way for us to be good enough for Him. There's no, way for us to, there's no way for us to earn our way back into the presence of God by our best efforts. If we were to stand before Him, we would all be condemned because He's holy and we are not. It seems hopeless until you remember, what did we just read? Jesus came to bring us back to God, right? To bring us back to the Father, how did he do that? He came into this world as a man. The eternal Son of God became a man, and he lived a perfect life. He, he did. He obeyed in all the ways we should have obeyed, but we failed to. He never failed in word or thought and action. His life was a life that was marked by service, by love, by compassion, by giving things we know to be beautiful, and yet we failed to do it. He did it all perfectly. And then when the moment was right, at the appointed time, the very central moment of history, he lays down his life on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners. And he bears in himself the wrath of God against the sins of all who will turn from their sins and trust in him. He died, but then he rose from the dead, showing that God had accepted his perfect sacrifice. And now, friends, the way to God has been opened. And the message of the gospel is this, if you will turn from your sin, if you'll turn from living for yourself, if you'll turn from trying to be good enough for God and instead acknowledge that you're sinful and that you'll never be able to earn God's favor, but then come to him and plead Christ and say, but Christ died for sinners like me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. That's a prayer that God hears. That's a prayer that God uses. That's a prayer that will save our God is a glorious Savior. So we urge you this morning, don't delay. Don't just hear the message again and leave and go watch football. Think about your never-dying soul and trust in Christ this morning. This is the very heart of our faith. Oh, I, I long for our young people to grasp this. I long for our young people to grasp that Christianity and going to church is not about being a moral person. It's about trusting in Jesus who alone saves sinners. So let's pray for that. And let's pray for, let's pray for others who do not yet know Christ, that they would come to know Him. Why did Christ die? Well, He died as a sacrifice in the place of His people so that we might be brought to God. That's what He was doing on the cross. He suffered for sinners. The second point, following the cross, Jesus proclaimed His victory over hell. Look with me, if you will, at the second part of verse 18. And we'll read to verse 20 again. He, that's Jesus, was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient, when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is, eight people, were saved through water. 
Now, through the centuries, a lot of ink has been spilled trying to figure out precisely what Peter is teaching us here. This is the portion of the passage in particular that Luther had in mind when he says he's not quite sure exactly what it means. And down to our days, faithful pastors and commentators continue to disagree with one another about the, the precise way to understand what Peter is saying here. And if you look at the passage itself, you see there's kind of two distinct questions that rise to the surface that we need to address The first question is, what does it mean that Jesus was made alive by the Spirit? Turn to the end of verse 18. What does it mean that Jesus was made alive by the Spirit? And then the second question is, what was Peter referring to when he spoke of Jesus making proclamation to the spirits in prison? Verses 19 and 20, what's that about? What's that referring to? Well, both of these are challenging questions. But we're going to do our best to look at God's Word together this morning. We're going to seek God's grace to be able to understand what's going on here. Think about that first question. What does it mean that Jesus was made alive by the Spirit? So look at the phrase again. Take your copy of God's Word. Look at the phrase again. Speaking of Jesus, Peter says, He was put to death in the flesh, but He was made alive by the Spirit. Now, the first part of that is pretty simple. Everyone agrees on what that means. It's talking about the cross where Jesus was put to death. He actually died. He didn't just faint and then, you know, come back to consciousness later on. He was put to death in the flesh. But then what does it mean that he was made alive by the Spirit? Well, well, there are two main interpretations to that, two main views. Many commentators think that this is referring to the resurrection, when by the power of the Holy Spirit... Jesus came back to life bodily, and of course, that did happen. That may well be what it means. So that's how my version of the the Bible, the Christian Standard Bible, translates this word by. It's by the Spirit. The New King James Version translates it the same way, by the Spirit. Again, the idea is it's the Holy Spirit by His power that's raising Christ from the dead. But I agree with those commentators who think that Peter is actually referring to something that happened while Jesus' body was still in the tomb. He's still dead physically, but something was going on. You see, he, he did die physically, but he did not only die physically in a unique way, he also died spiritually. What do I mean by that? I mean that in a way that is mysterious to us, on the cross, the eternal Son of God was separated for the first time in all eternity from the Father, and under the burden of that, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God, the Father, treating his Son as if he had committed all the sins of all who would ever be saved. He experienced this spiritual death, but he did not stay dead spiritually. He did not stay, listen, he did not stay separated from the Father. No, by virtue of his perfect life, by virtue of his perfect sacrifice, He uh, experiences, once again, life in the Spirit. He didn't stay dead spiritually. You see, the words, he was made alive by the Spirit, can also be translated, and I think this is important, I think it should be translated, made alive in the Spirit. If you have the New International Version, if you have the English Standard Version, if you have the New American Standard Bible, they translate the phrase that way, made alive in the Spirit. And in that case, we should understand Peter to be saying that even though he was dead physically, he came alive again spiritually, again, which means he was not separated from his father anymore. He was restored to fellowship and he had work to do. Even though he was physically dead, he still had spiritual work to do. 
what was the spiritual work? Well, that brings us to our second question. Look at verses 19 and 20. What was Peter referring to when he spoke of Jesus making proclamation to the spirits in prison? Look at verse 19 and 20 again. It says, in which, in the spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient, when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in it a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Now, the background of these verses is really clear to everyone. We know that Peter is talking about something that happened in the days of Noah before the flood. And in the days of Noah, there were some spirits who were disobedient. And as a, uh, as a result of their sinful disobedience to God, they were put in prison. And it was to these spirits that Christ went and made proclamation. But what does that mean? There are a lot of views. I'm just going to give you three that I think are probably the most clear, probably three of the main views. So following Augustine, many people believe what Peter is saying here is that Jesus in the Spirit was preaching through Noah in Noah's day. As Noah is proclaiming righteousness and repentance to all of the ungodly around him, those who rejected that ultimate message, it was ultimately the Spirit of Christ in Noah that was preaching to them. They were alive in the days of Noah, but now they're dead, so they're in prison in the sense that these are those who have rejected God and are in hell. That's a view. It's the Spirit of Christ preaching through Noah. And now those to whom he proclaimed the truth, well, now they're in prison, i.e., they are in hell. Some believe, a second view, that Peter is saying that after Christ rose from the dead physically, but before he ascended to heaven, he went and he made proclamation and proclamation of his ultimate victory over sin and Satan and death and hell. And to whom did he make proclamation? Well, to fallen angels who had been disobedient in the days of Noah by going and marrying women and having children who were, uh, yeah, I'm not sure the best word for it, but, but um, uh, incredibly wicked and demonically possessed and empowered in the days before Noah's flood. There's a third view, and it's similar to that second, but others believe that Peter is saying that after Christ died, but before he rose from the dead physically, he in the spirit went and made proclamation of his victory to fallen angels who had been disobedient in the days of Noah by marrying women and having children with them before Noah's flood. Now, that last view is my view. That's what I think this text is talking about. I believe Peter's saying that after his crucifixion, but before his resurrection, Jesus in spirit went and made proclamation, proclaimed his victory to fallen angels who have been imprisoned since the days of Noah because of their disobedience. Now, why do I believe that? Let me give you a few reasons. First, I believe this because the word spirits there, it almost certainly refers to angels. So in the New Testament, that word spirits in the plural almost always refers to angels rather than to humans. In addition, look at verse 20, and you see that in the very next verse, Peter actually talks about humans. He talks about Noah and his family. Now, my version of the Bible says eight people were saved through the flood, but the Greek is literally eight souls. The word soul there in the Greek is suke. It's not the same word as spirit. The word spirit there is pneuma. 
So in verse 19, you have him talking about spirits. The Greek word is pneuma. But then in verse 20, you have him talking about souls. And the souls are clearly human. It's very unlikely that he would be referring to humans, but call them spirits in verse 19. But then in the very next verse, he'd be referring to humans again and then calling them souls. There are two different groups in view. He's talking about angels. Jesus went to make proclamation to angels. Second, I believe this because Genesis chapter 6 likely records an event where angels who are called the sons of God in the Old Testament. In every other passage of the Old Testament, sons of God refers to angels. And and Genesis 6 indicates that they took to themselves human wives and raised up for themselves demonically influenced offspring. And that was the height of the rebellion in that ancient world. That was the height of Satan's rebellion against God. And God responded to this corruption of humanity where everything any person ever thought was only evil all the time by drowning that entire world and saving just eight. Noah, who found favor with God. Now, many commentators, many pastors whom I respect believe the phrase son of God in Genesis 6 refers to the godly line of Seth, who, they say, had intermarried with the ungodly line of Cain. And that this is what they're talking about, and that this is what God was responding to. My personal understanding is that that view does not sufficiently explain what's happening in Genesis 6. I did preach a sermon on Genesis 6 several years back. Uh, If you want to hear more, you can look at the website, and you'll hear thoughts on that. But suffice it to say that I understand Genesis 6 to be talking about a rebellion of fallen angels who crossed the line, who took their rebellion too far. And as a result, they have been judged. Third, I believe that Peter is referring to Jesus preaching to imprisoned fallen angels because the epistles of 2 Peter and Jude refer to some angels, not all fallen angels, but to some fallen angels who have been imprisoned because of their sin. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. For if God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell, and delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment. And if he didn't spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, when he brought the flood on the world of the ungodly. He there explicitly speaks of angels who were disobedient, and as a result of their disobedience, they were put in chains of utter darkness. And then notice, he immediately ties this together with the flood. And with Noah and the judgment that came on the entire world. Now listen to Jude, chapter, Jude verse 6 and 7. Jude says, And the angels who did not keep their own position, but abandoned their proper dwelling, he kept in eternal chains and deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns committed sexual immorality and perversion and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Here's another picture of God's judgment on the unrighteous. But notice that Jude seems to be referring to the same set of angels, those who have experienced this kind of judgment from God. But then he combines that now with Sodom and Gomorrah and the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, what was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, we know that it's, it's, a, it's a, a lack of hospitality. It's a, a gross materialism. But it was manifested most particularly in the sin of homosexuality. But it was the sin of the men of Sodom and Gomorrah trying to have relationships with angels that was the final straw. 
and judgment fell the very next day. So here you have Sodom and Gomorrah. What was their sin? They sought to have relations with angels. Their cities were destroyed. And then in Genesis 6, if my interpretation is correct, you have angels that are having relations with women and the entire world is destroyed. You see, I think the picture is becoming a little more clear. Fourth, I believe that Peter is teaching this because this is the very oldest interpretation of what happened in Genesis 6. So there is an ancient book, it's an ancient Jewish book called the book of Enoch. It's not an inspired book, but it does specifically say that angels sinned in precisely this way. First Enoch chapter 6 says, And it came to pass when the children of men had multiplied that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters. And the angels, the children of heaven, saw and lusted after them and said to one another, Come, let us choose us wise from among the children of men and beget us children. And all the others together with them took unto themselves wives, and each chose for himself one, and they began to go unto them, and to them, and to defile themselves with them. And they taught them charms and enchantments and cutting of roots and made them acquainted with plants, and they became pregnant, and they gave birth to great giants. You have this picture of angels cohabitating with human women, and you have this picture of witchcraft that comes out of it. Friends, there's a lot of witchcraft going on in our day. We need to be careful that not everything that masquerades itself as good is good. The book of Enoch is not inspired. But in his inspired letter, Jude references Enoch and what Enoch says lines up perfectly with what Jude says and what 2 Peter says and a straightforward reading of Genesis chapter 6. Now that's a deep dive, right? Well, let's try to picture the, the, the picture of the portrait that Peter is painting for us here. Jesus has just been crucified. Satan and his demons are thrilled at what seems to be their moment of triumph. These fallen angels who have been bound in chains of darkness for a long time since the days of Noah, perhaps they were beginning to think, huh, maybe Satan's going to win after all. Maybe we're not going to face punishment forever after all. Maybe Satan's going to win. Maybe there was even, as John MacArthur put it, a party in hell as they were celebrating the defeat of Jesus who was lying dead in the grave. But then Jesus showed up in the Spirit. And he didn't just show up. He began to make proclamation. It's the Greek word caruso. It's a word that speaks of heralding and proclaiming. But he was not, listen, he was not proclaiming the gospel. It's a different Greek word, yongalizo. He wasn't proclaiming the gospel. Why? There is no redemption for angels. Jesus came to redeem men and women from their sins. What does he proclaim? He proclaims his utter and complete victory over sin and Satan and death and hell. He lets them know that the moment when he seemed the weakest was actually the moment of his greatest triumph. The moment when he was suffering, he was overcoming. Overcoming to save his people. Imagine the shock of Satan and these fallen angels when Jesus showed up. Now that, I believe, is the right way to understand these verses. That's my understanding, okay? Now, how should we respond to that? Let me give you one observation and two applications as we kind of conclude our time together this morning, okay? The first observation is this, and this is an important one. Not every theological truth in the Bible is equally important. All of God's truth is important. Everything that God's Word has 
said to us, it's important, but listen, some truths are more important than others. You know that from 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul talks about the gospel and says it's what? It's of first importance. It's most important, right? So how should we respond? Right here you have this very difficult passage. How do we respond? Well, I'm convinced of my interpretation. I I really am. I'm convinced of my interpretation of this. I I think it makes sense. I think it fits very well with Genesis 6, and it fits very well with 1 Peter 3, and it fits very well with 2 Peter 2. It fits very well with Jude 6 and Jude 7. But I know some very godly men whom I respect greatly who would disagree with me. What must we do? Must we draw knives and fight? No. We don't actually have to do that, right? Perhaps you've listened to my explanation this morning and you have been thoroughly unconvinced by the explanation and you simply disagree with me. What should we do? Well, we should praise God that there is such a thing as theological triage. What is theological triage? What do I mean by that? I mean, once again, while everything that God has said in the Bible is important, not everything is equally important. And theological triage is something that we have to grow in when in spiritual maturity we become to understand those truths that are most central, that are most essential, that are most important so that we can learn how we can interact with others who might disagree with us on issues that are not as important. Theological triage does recognize some doctrines are more important, more necessary, more essential than others And it breaks these truths down into three categories. First order, second order, and third order issues. First order doctrines, issues, are those that are essential for Christians to believe. There are doctrines of the Christian faith that are essential for you to believe if you're going to be a Christian. In other words, it doesn't matter if you're a nice person who says you're a Christian. If you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, you're not a Christian. If you don't believe in the virgin birth, you're not a Christian. If you don't believe in the substitutionary atonement of Christ, you're not a Christian. Being a Christian is not a matter of going to church, not a matter of being a nice person. You may be nicer than every Christian in this room. It has nothing to do with you being a Christian. There's doctrine that must be believed. There's faith that must be be, uh, exhibited as we respond to what God has said. Christians do that. Anyone who's not a Christian does not respond in the same way. Second order doctrine. So first order, you have to believe these or you're not a Christian. They're essential. Second-order doctrines are those doctrines that Christians must agree upon in order to be a part of, a, in a healthy way, the same local church. So think about the issue of baptism. Will we baptize infants, or will we not baptize infants? I have brothers and sisters whom I love and appreciate who disagree with me on that issue. And I can love them in many ways, but it's going to be very difficult for us to like meaningfully build a, a healthy church together because the question is going to be, what do we do for the infants, right? What do we do? Church government is also a part of this, right? Will we have a plurality of elders, a number of pastors who are all equal, or will we have a single pastor? Those are mutually exclusive views of church governments. You have to pick one or the other. These are second order doctrines issues, and they're second order because they, you have to understand where you're going and have unity in this if you're going to have a healthy church. Otherwise, we're just going to fight against each other the whole time. Third-order doctrines are things that Christians are free to lovingly debate, but they should not divide over. In other words, 
uh, members in the church can ha have different opinions over these doctrines, and they can still participate with one another well to, to build up a healthy church. So we can disagree on them, we can debate them lovingly, but we should not divide over them. Instead, we should prayerfully seek God for wisdom, we should study God's Word, and then we should just love each other if we still disagree. So, for instance, how you interpret 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 20, is a third order issue. You can disagree with me on the interpretation, and we can be part of a church, and we can just love each other, and we can serve the Lord together, but there are other third order theological issues. The nature of the millennium. Whether or not the sign gifts, the miraculous sign gifts, continue to this day, the age of the earth are all third order doctrines that as a church we've decided that we can agree to disagree on and still be able to build up a church. And by God's grace, for the last eight years, he's helped us to do that. He's helped us to continue to love one another and serve one another. Are those doctrines unimportant? They are absolutely important. Should we study them? We should absolutely study them. What if we disagree? We should love one another, and we should be on the mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ and helping one another grow in Christ-likeness. Two applications. And this, you know, at the beginning when I said, hey, God's so kind that he makes the clearest things or the most important things clear. Okay, this is the clearest thing. We should praise God for his victory over sin and Satan and death. What is it that's so crystal clear from this passage? It's the fact that Jesus is victorious. It's the fact that he has defeated all rival powers. It's the fact that he reigns over all, that no one can stop Jesus. And those of us who are in Christ should praise him because his victory is our victory. We see we overcome in him. It's because he's victorious that we will ultimately be victorious because he has won the victory for us over sin and Satan and hell. We should praise him, right? I love singing with you on Sunday mornings. I, listen, I love hearing your voice. It was beautiful to hear you sing this morning. And you know what? If you don't sing well, who cares? Sing out. It's beautiful when all of God's people join together. And what are we praising him for? We're praising him for his victory over all rival powers because he's worthy. He's worthy. We should praise him. A second application, Christians should remember that because Jesus was victorious, we will outlast the sufferings of this life. Remember the context of 1 Peter. Who is Peter talking to? He's talking to suffering Christians. He's not talking to ivory tower theologians and going back and forth with them about the intricacies of, of the doctrine of redemption in some kind of you know, academic, hands-off way. He's talking to men and women, boys and girls who are suffering persecution for following Jesus. And how is he encouraging them? He's encouraging them with the fact that, hey, you know what? Your Savior is victorious. And so your suffering is limited. Brothers and sisters, we will face suffering in this life. But you see, we follow the path of Jesus who first suffered and then he was victorious. And we likewise will suffer, but then we will also in him be victorious we say it often, but for the Christian, suffering always precedes glory. So here's my question. How are you, brother or sister, how are you suffering this morning? How are you suffering? A few of us are suffering from persecution. 
Uh, our faith is not welcome. I think many of our college students are experiencing more and more of that, but high school students as well in some cases, and maybe even in the workforce. Some of us are suffering from chronic pain that has racked our bodies for years. And the hard thing about chronic pain is no one sees it. No one knows that you're suffering, but some of us are suffering in that way. Some of us are suffering from depression and anxiety. That's also invisible. That also can't be seen. And we're tempted to isolate ourselves from others, and that only ever makes it worse, right? And yet it's the thing we want to do and we think we should do. That's a form of suffering. Some of us are suffering because of broken relationships within our families. Some of us are at risk of losing our jobs in the next few weeks, more than a few of us. And we're trying to figure out, well, how am I going to provide for my family? That's a form of suffering. Some of us are grieving the loss of a spouse, whether that was a decade ago or earlier this year. Because the pain of that, it never, it never ultimately goes away. It doesn't go away. We suffer in many ways. So how are we to suffer well, right? That's what we're being called to. He's, he's saying, hey, Christ suffered, but he's victorious. You can suffer well. How can we suffer well? We suffer well by faith, by trusting, by faith that all the suffering God permits in our life, it, he uses it to make us like Jesus and to glorify his name. And then more to the point of this passage, by faith, we embrace the reality that the victory has already been won so my suffering for Christ and my suffering in a fallen world, it's limited. A few more days, a few more months, a few more years, and we will have cried our last tear. We will have said our last goodbye. We will have felt our last pain, and then we will be forever with the Lord. I love the passage in 1 Thessalonians 4. It says, comfort one another with these words. We're going to see the Lord. That's how we suffer well. Praise God, because Jesus is victorious, we will outlast our sufferings. It's a good word. We look at these verses and we've seen a lot, right? We've seen the gospel so clearly laid forth before us that, that even now, friend, if you're, not a, if you're not a Christian, if you've never trusted in Christ, he's calling you to put your faith in him and in him alone. And we've seen Jesus' triumph over his enemies as he declares victory over all the powers of of hell. And Lord willing, next week we'll continue to look at Christ's victory as we look at these next two verses in verses 21 and 22 and see, see more about what Christ has done in being victorious for us. Let's, let's pray.